0: Call someone a Scrooge, and most people will immediately know what you're talking about. A nasty, sour, mean-spirited tightwad who's addicted to money and could care less about anybody else. A total grump who can suck the fun out of any family gathering. So why are we using the story of Scrooge as written in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, why are we using that story as a basis for our advent messages? Shouldn't we be talking about shepherds and wise men and angel choirs? I mean, besides the fact that a Christmas carol takes place on a Christmas Eve, what does it have to do with the birth of Jesus? Well, it's a story of transformation, a powerful allegory of biblical repentance and the birth of a new life. And isn't that why Jesus was born? He was born because we needed a Savior, someone who would come with grace and love and mercy, who could bring healing and hope and forgiveness and faith to the human heart. So to get started this morning, let me read a story about someone whose life was transformed by Christ from the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, starting with verse 36. Luke 7, starting with verse 36. Let's hear God's word. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, and so... She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume over them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. The one owed him $5,000, the other fifty. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house, you did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, though her sins have been many, they are forgiven, because her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It was October 1843. Charles Dickens stepped out of his brick and stone home near Regent's Park in London to go for a walk. He was normally a very buoyant, kind of optimistic person, but on that particular night he had a very heavy heart. At age 31, he was at the peak of his writing career. His novels, the, the Pickwick Papers, Oliver Twist, Nicholas Nickaby, had all sold very well, but his newest novel, Martin Chiselwit, was a total flop. I mean, who here has ever heard of Martin Chiselwit? That's how bad it was. It was really bad. And a few months earlier, his publisher had told him that his advances were running out. So that news stunned Dickens because he was supporting a large extended family His expenses were nearly more than he could manage. His father and his brothers were always asking for loans. His wife, Kate, was pregnant with their fifth child. All summer long, he'd worried about his mounting bills, especially the large mortgage on the house that he lived in. So Dickens knew he needed an idea that would earn him a lot of money fast. But in his depression, it was giving him writer's block. So as he went on his nightly walk, he was hoping for a breakthrough. First he wandered through London's uh, nicer neighborhoods. But then as he got closer to the Thames River, things changed, there were were tenement houses and open sewers and people hovering in the shadows, litter strewn everywhere. Reminded him of a recurring nightmare that he had been having for most of his life. In his nightmare, he sees a 12 year old boy sitting at a work table where he works 12 hours a day, six days a week putting labels on an endless stream of shoe polish jars to earn just six shillings, which was barely enough to keep him alive. With his father in debtor's prison, this boy's only schooling was the one hour lesson he would get during their dinner break at the warehouse. Now the scary part of this dream was that it didn't come out of Dickens' imagination. It was a replay of his own earlier life. He was that boy working 12 hours a day at a shoe polish factory. Until his father inherited some money and was able to pay off his debts and get out of debtor's prison. But as an adult, that experience haunted him, and the fear of poverty haunted him. As he headed home through the slums, he had a fra- flash of inspiration. Why not? Why not a story, a Christmas story about a destitute family? Christmas was less than three months away. The book would have to be short, would have to be ready to be printed in time for Christmas sales, and so he began to write. The manuscript grew page by page and then at last on December 2nd, he finished the manuscript, sent it off to the printer and it went on sale December 19th, 1843. The first edition of 6,000 copies sold out by Christmas Eve. So Dickens' financial situation was reversed and the world got a great story. But that's not all. According to his own testimony, writing this short story was a spiritual experience for him personally. Dickens' heart was strangely moved by his own story. It put him on a new path with Jesus Christ and a few years later he would write the very first children's version of the Gospels because he wanted his daughter, he wanted his own children to know the stories of Jesus in a way that they could understand. Now, Dickens did not write an explicitly gospel story but A Christmas Carol gives us this wonderful model of a sinner's transformation from, light, from darkness to light. Dickens doesn't give us a lengthy biography of Scrooge. Instead, through Scrooge's mystical encounters with these three ghosts, the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. He gives us a series of these short little vignettes that help us to discover what made Scrooge the man he became. Because you see, he wasn't always that way. He wasn't always cruel and heartless. That's what he became. And that first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, takes Scrooge on a journey back through his own troubled childhood. The ghost of Christmas past is this glowing, childlike spirit who magically transports Scrooge to the boarding school where he spent his boyhood years. And as first as they zoom in over the countryside, Scrooge seizes all his fellow students, his classmates, on their way home for Christmas vacation. When his face lights up, he remembers their names, he calls out to them. But of course they can't hear. But you see joy in Scrooge's face for the very first time. But that joy doesn't last long and the next moment the ghost takes him to the boarding school it's deserted all except for of course one boy and that boy is Scrooge. Left alone with nothing to cheer him except the characters in his beloved books. All the other boys have gone home for Christmas to see their families but Scrooge's father doesn't want him around. We get the sense that Scrooge's mother died while giving him birth. And in his grief over the loss of his wife, the father blames the son, Scrooge. There's no affection, there is no bond between father and son, only an intense loneliness. All that pain resurfaces and the old Scrooge starts to weep bitter tears for the child that he once was. For the first time, he feels compassion for someone else, even if that someone else is actually just an earlier version of himself. Yet as he feels for himself, Scrooge also shows just this first glimmer of maybe he could care for another human being. He says to the ghost, there was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something. Then into this gray scene comes Scrooge's beloved sister, Fawn. She comes to tell him that their father has changed. He's so much nicer now, she says, and the father will allow young Ebenezer to come home for Christmas. And You can see how much Scrooge was comforted by his sister, but the brightness and the love that she brought into his life is soon snuffed out when it's revealed that a few years later she dies while giving birth to Scrooge's only nephew, Fred, the one that he had so badly mistreated only a few hours earlier. The grief of her loss is overwhelming to Scrooge and in many ways it parallels the grief of his father had over the death of Scrooge's mother. But the next scene in Scrooge's past shows that he didn't have a completely damaged uh, childhood. There were good influences too. The ghost of Christmas past takes Scrooge to the warehouse of old Fezziwig. What a great name, Fezziwig. To whom Scrooge had once been apprenticed. That's like having a really long internship. Fezziwig was this fun-loving, very generous man. The mere sight of his old boss brings joy to Scrooge's heart as he witnesses this grand Christmas party. It looks as though Scrooge actually thrived under Fezziwig's tutelage. Scrooge also had a good friend named Dick Wilkins, and we see no hint of the selfish kind of Christmas-hating man that Scrooge eventually became. He had a good role model. He had a good friend. And yet something happened when Scrooge went out into the world on his own, into the business world, that changed his heart forever. We see his fiancée, Belle, tell Scrooge that she's breaking off their engagement. Well, why, he says. She says, another idol has displaced me. She explains, this idol is a golden one, which Dickens calls gain. Let me read the dialogue for a second. Bell says, you fear the world too much. All your other hopes have merged into the hope of being beyond the chance of its sordid reproach. I have seen your noble aspirations fall off one by one until this master passion, gain, engrosses you. Our contract is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so until in good season we could improve our worldly fortune by our patient industry. You are changed. When it was made, you were another man. Scrooge has become this tight-fisted, hard-as-nails man who only cares about financial gain. What drove him to that? Maybe the recognition of just how difficult it is to be poor. But it's more than just materialism. He's consumed by a fear. He's so afraid of being poor that he's let all the other things of his life fall away, including his desire to marry this woman that he once loved. Belle is no longer his first love and she knows it and has the sense to break off the relationship even though it's very painful. But then the ghost shows Scrooge one more scene from his past. It's a few years later when Belle is older and has a husband and children, and she's happy. And Scrooge sees what he missed by being so consumed by greed. Their family love just stands in stark contrast to his miserly loneliness. And at this, the pain is so deep in Scrooge, he begs to go home. He exclaims, I cannot bear it any longer. So what made Scrooge Scrooge? Was it, what was this recipe that Turned him into the man that he became. Well, you start with an unhappy childhood. He never knew his mother's love. Had a cruel and distant father. He was sent away to boarding school. He had few friends among his classmates. He only had his books to keep him company. The only student not going home for Christmas. The death of his beloved sister at a young age. The fear of poverty. A growing love for the safety represented by material things. Top it off with his fiance's rejection. And what have you got? You've got Scrooge, whose heart was just hardened by the impact of a sad life, but also his own sad choices. His hands just kind of clutch around the only thing that gives him meaning and security, and that's money. So it's not surprising that a person who has experienced this kind of pain would try to take charge of their circumstances so that nobody could ever hurt him again. Yet in trying to protect himself by worshiping this idol, he pushes away any source of love, that might have shown him a better way to live. The ghost of Christmas past beyond just conjuring up you know Scrooge's feelings of nostalgia, he helps him to see and really feel the harsh contrast between love and loneliness, and you really can't, be, can't help but be moved by Scrooge as he looks upon himself as a lonely child. It's as if Dickens realizes that even the person with the hardest heart might have the tiniest little soft spot even for themselves in their own suffering. One observer writes that Scrooge is actually acting out sort of a psychological golden rule, beginning first to be able to love himself and then maybe being able to love others. From a therapeutic angle, people say Scrooge is getting in touch with his inner child. For most of us, the experiences we had as children are the primary influences in who we become as adults. More and more we recognize how the wounds of childhood and adolescence continue to influence our our self-image, our behavior, our emotions, but also our relationship with God. Experiences of rejection and self-doubt and failure, well those happen, those are normal things, they happen to every one of us. And often they're offset by positive experiences of acceptance and confidence and success. We're all a mix of good and bad things from our childhood. But there's also a growing awareness that many people have had childhood experiences that go far beyond the normal negatives. That they experienced real trauma, real abuse and pain. And the psychologists and therapists who've been studying this stuff for a long time have enough data now to show a connection between childhood trauma and many of the problems people face as adults. And I don't just mean emotional and psychological problems, but medical problems they're developing something called the ACE score, A-C-E, it stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. An ACE score is a tally of different kinds of abuse and neglect and other markers of a rough childhood. And so according to the research, the rougher your childhood, the higher your ACE score, and the higher then your risk for later health problems. Things like diabetes and stroke and heart disease and cancer and so many other diseases, all more likely in a person's life because of their childhood trauma. So it's good to know your ACE score so that you can begin to do something about it and be more aware of it as you grow older. Because while an ACE score is predictive, it does not determine your future. And that's an important distinction. It can predict, but it does not determine. In other words, you don't have to be a victim of your past. Even if your past was traumatic, you can do things to care for yourself and for your health that can break the cycle predicted by a high A score. I would guess that many of the young women involved in young lives, if you were to look into their whole history, have a pretty high A score. And one of the reasons the ministry is so important is that it helps to break that cycle and gives them a better way to live, a new direction so that they don't continue to repeat this cycle, particularly the cycle of poverty. ACE scores don't tally the positive experiences that can help build resilience and protect a child from the effects of the trauma. Having a grandparent who loves you, a teacher, a youth pastor, a coach, someone who understands and believes in you, a good friend, those things can mitigate the long-term effects of early trauma. Now, I don't know what Scrooge's A score would be, but I'd guess it'd be pretty high. And it helps to know his backstory because it shows how much he had to overcome in order to find this new way of life. It was not gonna be easy for him. When Jesus went to that home of Simon the Pharisee, a woman from the town hears about it, comes to the house to bathe Jesus' feet with perfume as a sign of devotion and love. And there's a lot of symbolism associated with that anointing that I can't go into this morning, but suffice it to say it was an extravagant act, something that took everyone by surprise, including Jesus. And Luke tells us only one thing about this woman, Verse 37, that she had lived a sinful life. No details. Only that she had lived a sinful life. Well, that statement, plus the fact that she lets her hair down in public, which no, no, uh, no, no respectable woman would ever have done that, hints at the fact that she was probably a prostitute. And hence the snarky thoughts by Salmon, who thought Jesus, if Jesus was a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman was rubbing his feet, and would put a stop to it. But Jesus knows his thoughts, and he gives him that beautiful little parable: Two men owed money to a moneylender. One owed him 5,000, the other 50, forgives them both. Which do you think would love him more? And Simon responded, the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, "You have responded correctly, this woman. You know, when I came to your house, you didn't give me any water to wash my feet. She's washed my feet with her tears. You didn't put any." You didn't kiss me, she's not stopped kissing me since I came in. You didn't put any oil on my head, she has not stopped, but pouring perfume over my feet. Therefore I tell you, Jesus said, that her many sins have been forgiven. And whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. And what I like about what Jesus said to Simon was in verse 44. He says, do you see this woman? Simon, do you actually see her? Do you see her for who she really is, a lost sheep who's looking for her shepherd? Simon, could you you actually see her? Because Simon only saw the woman based on her reputation and her current circumstances. He judged her and he dismissed her as a nuisance and a nobody. Thought she wasn't worthy of their time or their attention. But Jesus, he saw her. And in seeing her, he knew her whole story. Because everybody has a story. Jesus knew what had happened to her in her past. Knew the things where what she had done. Knew the things that were done to her. He knew the traumas that she had experienced as a child that led her into the life that she was now leading. I mean, no young girl aspires to become a sex worker. That's nobody's career path. So in seeing her, Jesus understood the circumstances, the pressures, the trauma that forced her in that direction. He knew what pushed her to accumulate so much spiritual debt. Do you see her, Jesus asked. Is there a shred of empathy Is there a shred of sympathy in you? Can you bring yourself to see this person as a real person with feelings and dreams and hardships and yes, mistakes? Do you really see her? Jesus saw her and without even saying anything or doing anything, simply his presence was enough for this unnamed woman to feel loved and valued and respected and wanted, not even in spite of her past but maybe even because of it. And in the presence of Christ, she found acceptance and a new self. And so Jesus can say to her, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. You see, what can transform the human heart? Whether it's the heart of a Scrooge scarred by childhood trauma or the heart of this woman whose untold story certainly contains a lot of pain and damage. What can heal that kind of brokenness? Well, I love the verse from Psalm 2710 that says, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. That's how it's translated in the NIV and the New Living Translation puts it this way. Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will hold me close. God has the ability to help heal not only our childhood trauma but also the general sense of loneliness and aloneness that we all have. You see, God can reparent people who did not have a loving connection with their own parents. God can fill in the gaps where even the best parents fail their children because no parent is perfect. And what people find in the Lord is a father and a mother who will never leave you. A father who will protect you and not hurt you, who knows what you need, who listens, who delights in you. As God says in Isaiah 43:4, You are precious in my eyes. A heavenly father who loves no matter what, who can help us face our fears of abandonment and loneliness. This is how the Lord begins to bring healing to the human heart. That's how change begins to happen when we recognize the fatherly and the motherly love of God expressed to us through Jesus Christ. Now I think this is especially important for men. Men whose fathers were not necessarily abusive, but maybe just distant or or absent. Fathers who couldn't connect with their sons emotionally. Because, men, your heavenly father can rebuild what your human father could not provide. That seems like I've been recommending a lot of books lately. Well, here's another one. A great book by John Eldridge called Fathered by God. It's a great resource, especially for men who are just never able to bond with their fathers. Because, men, we want to break that cycle. We want to break that cycle so that with our own children, we're able to express love and nurture to our children just as God, our father, expresses love and nurture to us folks the message of the gospel is we don't have to be victims of our past we don't have to be bound by our past like ebenezer scrooge we can live a different way like the woman at jesus's feet life can change when we realize that we are loved and accepted forgiven and valued or better yet when we see that we are valuable in the eyes of jesus because that's how the human heart begins to change let's pray together Lord, I thank you for these two powerful stories, the story of Scrooge, but also the story of this woman and how her life was changed simply by coming into the presence of Christ and experiencing deep within her heart the love and the acceptance that he had to provide, Lord, and how that brought a change. Lord, may we step into that kind of love to know you as our loving heavenly father, our loving heavenly mother even, Because we need that nurture, we need that strength, we need that care. So that we can break any chain that might bind us to our past, any trauma from our past, but also help us to do a good job, a better job with our own children, Lord. And if there are people here who are reliving now some serious trauma from their past, Lord, we pray that they would find healing in you, Lord, and that you would also... If we have any issues in our own family where there's strain and broken relationship, maybe with our own children, Lord, that you would give us the courage this Christmas season to be the ones who reach out beyond what we would normally do to be the person who brings peace and reconciliation and forgiveness into our family. Lord, help us to experience the peace that you offer this Christmas. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.